Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Chronicles 17. This is what we might call a standalone sermon. I haven't ever preached 1 Chronicles in my memory anyway, or at least uh, not in many years. <clears throat> the books of First and Second Chronicles are perhaps the, the newest books of the Old Testament, if that makes sense, the most recently written books. Uh, in fact, in the, the Bible that Jesus would have used, they would have been the last book of the Old Testament. And I do say one book, as in First and Second Chronicles were originally one book divided in half uh, due to the length that, that it is. So it's essentially cut down the middle into two parts. And uh, they, they were one book, though, when they were, when they were written by the, the author, who we assume was someone perhaps like Ezra or Nehemiah in that era. Uh, the book was written after the exile, so if you are familiar with Israel's history, they were taken into the promised land, but they continued to sin terribly against the Lord, and so as uh, judgment against their iniquity, the Lord cast them out of the land. We refer to that time as the exile, and then they came back into the land and uh, through a providential work of God, and this book was written after that time uh, to encourage those who had returned to the promised land. Uh, so the author is writing to rekindle hope and encouragement uh, and faith that God will keep his word to his people, that he hasn't forgotten his people even though they uh, had sinned so high-handedly against him. So this book was written alongside of books like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, which is why they are grouped together in our English Bibles as well. But the author arranged this presentation of material, which is very similar to First and Second Samuel and parts of First and Second Kings, uh, which like Chronicles, were originally one book each, divided in half later. Uh, but he wrote this material and he arranged this material in a way to persuade his readers uh, to endorse certain beliefs and attitudes and actions. And he urged people to seek God with all their hearts. And you look through the books of Chronicles and just search for the word seek or sought and it comes up all over the place. So that's why I say it that way. To seek God with all of their hearts through humility and obedience and prayer and worship. So with all of that in mind, we'll be reading today 1 Chronicles 17. And I'll be reading the second half of 1 Chronicles 17, which is verses 16 through 27. Please follow along as I read this passage aloud. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord. And there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things, and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God." And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. 
Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Who is the most wicked person you have ever met or you have ever heard of? And as you think of that individual, what is it about that person that makes them so wicked? Is it their violent acts, their pervasive dishonesty, their utter disregard for authority, sexual perversions? What is it that makes the most wicked person you've ever heard of fall into that category? What makes them defined in your mind as the most wicked? Perhaps they were treating people as mere property. John Newton would have said that he was the most wicked person he had ever met for all of the reasons I just listed. His dishonesty, his disregard for authority, his sexual perversion, his treating people as mere property. He would have considered, he did consider himself as the chief of sinners. And that's why he found God's grace toward him so utterly amazing. If it was possible to set a Guinness Book of World Records uh, feat for being the most wicked, he would have been gunning for that award. Like he wanted to be characterized that way. He did not hold back. He was a confirmed atheist and a noisy blasphemer. While traveling the seas in various roles as a captain of a slave ship, as a, just a, an extra you know, person on slave ships uh, back in the 1700s, he cast himself in the role of rotten apple within the ship's rotten company. So in other words, you hear people say, he swears like a sailor. Newton put all those other swearing sailors to shame. He utterly disgusted them with the way that he lived and the way that he spoke. He flaunted insolence, slackness, and disobedience, doing his best to corrupt others into following his bad example. I was exceedingly vile, he later recalled. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. If there was a way you could make somebody else sin, he was going to work at making other people sin in those same ways. He was often at the forefront of tearing husbands away from their wives and children, shackling these screaming men in heavy fetters and chaining them in horrific overcrowded squalor in the bottom of slave ships. It's clear from later accounts of this period of his life that Newton indulged himself in sexual abuse throughout these journeys across the Atlantic Ocean. Even after his conversion for a while, As one author put it, he spent his morning having devotions, his day trading slaves, and his night writing love letters to his wife back home, even after his conversion. It just did not register with him for a while that what he was doing was an abomination. But where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The Lord used a variety of circumstances to draw this wicked man to himself. For one, he spent some time as a slave himself, so much so that the black slaves around him pitied him for how terribly he was mistreated by his slave owner in West Africa. 
He also had many close calls with death. As I've already mentioned, he was a sailor. He was the captain of slave trading ships, and he didn't know how to swim. And there were many close calls uh, where ships he was on were often in terrifying storms, where he was so drunk he couldn't keep his own feet, and he's nearly falling over the side of ships into the tossing seas below, and somebody grabs the back of his shirt and pulls him back over. That happened over and over again. There was a time he was supposed to get on a ship, and right before the ship was going to leave land, someone said, you know what, you stay here, we'll send somebody else, and that ship went and drowned. Over and over again, this man nearly died. But in all of these providences, these miraculous works of God, the Lord began to draw his heart back to himself. And I say back to himself because he was born in London with a Christian mother. We're not sure about the faith of his father, but up until about the age of six or seven, he was regularly being catechized by his mother through catechisms that perhaps we even affirm together at times. He was perhaps memorizing the creeds that we affirm together as a congregation. And his mother was influencing him in this way, but then she died right before his seventh birthday. His father was out at sea when that happened, and it wasn't for another six or eight months or so before he found out that his wife had died back home. That was the nature of social media at the time. And so Newton saw, as he reflected back later in his life, before he died in 1807, he looked back on these difficult moments in his life as all being arranged by the beautiful hand of God in an effort to draw this man by the Holy Spirit back to himself, to himself in salvation. 250 years ago today, he was preaching at his church in Olney, England, about 60 miles north of London, and he was preaching on the passage that I read for us a few minutes ago from 1 Chronicles 17. And in order to try and drive the point of this passage home, that God has done amazing things in the past and he has amazing things ahead of us, he wanted to write a song as he was doing regularly for his congregation there. Uh, Compiled for us some 300 or so hymns called the Only Hymns. And he, uh, as part of that, he wrote a hymn called Faith's Review and Expectation. And we know it now as Amazing Grace. And his congregation sang it together that day, not to the tune that we know, the tune that we sang it uh, to these lyrics earlier was not written until about 1831 or so, or at least it wasn't paired with uh, the text of Amazing Grace until about 1831. But what he was doing was trying to drive home the fact to his congregation that God had been exceedingly kind to them. As he had been exceedingly kind to him, as he had been exceedingly kind to David when he wrote this passage, 1 Chronicles 17. What this passage is laying out for us is what we often refer to as the Davidic covenant. And it's also, it's a, there's a parallel passage in 2 Samuel 7, perhaps that's more familiar to you, but it's one of the, the kind of turning point hinges in the Old Testament. It's what we refer to as a load-bearing wall of the Old Testament. Like this one is really holding up a lot of weight because so many of the Psalms, for instance, were written with this passage in mind, with the fact that God promised that from David's family would come a king who would rule forever. And that thread then is played out throughout the rest of the Bible, including throughout the book of Luke, as we've seen time and time again, even in our passage last week, Luke 1 and 2, as a way of review for Christmas. But as we read this passage, as, as I have read David's response to what God said to him, how should we respond 
And essentially what John Newton would tell you, I think what David would tell you, is you should review God's grace to you. And you should anticipate God's grace in the future. Review God's grace to you and anticipate God's grace in the future. What happened in the passage just before the one I read in the establishment of the Davidic covenant was David looking around him while he was at home one day. First Chronicles 16 ends with him being home and realizing I live in a beautiful, sturdy, luxurious house. And yet the presence of God is symbolized by a tent, the tabernacle. I should do something about that, he said. And he said that to the prophet Nathan. And Nathan heard from the Lord himself, and the Lord said, actually, go tell David, you're not going to build me a house, a structure with walls. I'm going to build you a house. But that wasn't a structure with walls. What God meant when he said to David he was going to build him a house was he was going to build him a dynasty, a family lineage, a lineage that would not ever die out. So a family tree that continues to go on all the way to the time when you find a king who will reign forever. And David would have connected that promise with other promises before him, like the promise in Genesis 3 that there would be a... a, an individual born to crush the serpent who had tempted God's people, Adam and Eve, in the garden. The promise that God would give someone who would bring blessing to the world to undo the curse from Genesis 3. And that's mentioned in, in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And on and on. All these promises would have come to David's mind that I'm going to give you a son and he's going to reign forever bringing righteousness and peace to all the earth. And it's as if David puts his hand over his mouth and says, how in the world did you look at me and say, you're the one that should receive this blessing? And so David prays this magnificent and beautiful prayer in verses 16 through 27 that I read for us a few minutes ago, where he recounts all that God said he would do. Essentially, what God says is, I took you from the pasture. I want you to look back at what you have accomplished or what what I have accomplished in your life from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone through many dangers and toils and snares in David's own life and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And that's the review part of David's life. And then the rest of that passage is the anticipation where the Lord says, here's what I'm going to do for you. Things like, I will make a name for you. Like the names of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. He goes on and says, I will build you a house. And when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, which means you're going to die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, which we know to be Solomon who 2 Chronicles 1-9 through portrays as being the ideal Israelite, the one who ideally worships and follows God. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, referring to a temple, the kind that David thought he was going to be responsible to build. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. And if you want to look at that word, steadfast love, as grace, That would be an appropriate word to put there. I will not take away the grace that I give him, but I will confirm him. And it's as I took it from him who was before you, for that's referring to Saul, to King Saul. 
But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So from you, David, will come a son named Solomon, as we know, and from him will come this great Messiah who we know to be called Jesus, the Messiah. And so how should you respond to this? You should review God's grace to you. And perhaps you want to pause right there and say, well, what is grace? And it is a loaded term. And one of the ways you can often define a term, rather than cheating like I do sometimes and looking in a theological dictionary, is you can check how a word is used, especially through the New Testament. And you can, so for instance, maybe I would describe something to you like it holds something, it can break, it can fall, you can hand it to someone else and you're trying to figure out what I'm talking about, it holds water, it pours water, you can clean it. I mean, there's just a variety of things you can say about a water bottle. That would be what I'm talking about there. You could say the same thing about, you could define a book in a whole bunch of different ways. You could define a chair in a whole bunch of different ways. Or you can, I shouldn't say define it, you can talk about it in a whole bunch of different ways. What you can do to it, what it can do to you and for you. And in so doing, you can begin to work out what a good definition looks like. So listen to some of these ways that the New Testament refers to grace. God gave it to us before the ages began. It comes from the Father and the Son. By it, Christ tasted death for everyone. It is a gift of God, and He gives more of it to the humble. It is varied. Uh, It overflowed. We are saved and called to a holy calling because of it and not because of our works. That's from 1 Timothy 1.9. It strengthens us. It has appeared. We are justified by it. We are strengthened by it. You can be multiplied in it. You can receive it. From the book of Acts alone, you can be full of it. You can see it. You can continue in it. Be commended to it. Be saved through it. Believe through it. Testify to the gospel of it. Commend others to the word of it. In Romans, you can receive it. Be justified by it. And I could keep going on and on. It is a beautiful study. Just get on what I use is esv.literalword.org or .com. I'm not sure. If you want, I can send you the link right after the service. And I type in the word grace, and it shows all the places the word grace shows up. You could type in the word gracious, and it would show all the times the word gracious shows up. And you can just begin to observe what does this text, what does the whole Bible say about grace? So in light of all those words, what would we say that grace is? How would we define it? Grace is undeserved favor given to those deserving the exact opposite. Sometimes we just stop at its undeserved favor. That's a good starter But you need to go that one step further and say grace is undeserved favor toward those who deserve the exact opposite. In other words, what do you deserve? The wrath of God. What did you deserve instead? The blessing of God. The grace of God. And so how do we review God's grace to us? How should you review God's grace? What John Newton was trying to do 250 years ago today was write a sermon helping his congregation review how kind God had been to that congregation in this little town called Olney. And from what I understand, that town was a very dark place in terms of just, it was a lot of blue-collar workers, uh, industrial town, lots of pain, lots of agony, lots of death from disease. They didn't have ibuprofen back then. They didn't have Lysol wipes back then. They didn't have anesthesia back then. So this congregation was full of hurting people, just like we would be if we were living before 
things like Lysol wipes and ibuprofen and anesthesia. And John Newton was trying to help his people see there's beauty all around you, even in the hard moments, even in the hard jobs that you work. And so how do we review God's grace to us? I want to encourage you, just from uh, even just from looking at the life of John Newton, to consider all the ways that God has been kind to you and just trace out the providence of God in your life. And I've encouraged you to do this before, but kind of maybe grab a journal and write through what is the history of your life through the lens of faith. God gave you parents and gave your parents a healthy delivery of you. You realize there are millions of people who cannot say that much right there, but you can say that much. And you can go beyond that if you have parents who taught you the gospel. That is a blessing. And maybe they raised you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Maybe they catechized you. Maybe they taught you even simple songs that taught you the truth of the gospel. Review these circumstances through the lens of faith. Maybe you could ask yourself, if you could change one part of your life right now, what would you change? And just ponder that for a moment. I will tell you, it does not take me a second to think of the answer to that question. And maybe it doesn't take you long either. But what I want to tell you, what John Newton would want to tell you, is that you have exactly the circumstances God wants you to have right now. The way he specifically said that is this, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let me read it again, and you just try to understand what he means by this. Everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. If you have it, God says you need to have it. If you don't have it, God says you don't need to have it, at least not yet. Maybe you'll have it later on, right? But right now, your life circumstances have been dialed up with perfection by God. That means if you're an Ohio State fan, that kicker did not kick the ball well at like 11.30 last night by the providence of God. And that poor guy now has to live with that the rest of his life, just like Cody Parkey and every other kicker who's ever missed a kick has to live with that. But what I'm saying is the Lord arranged the details of every moment of your life to be exactly what he wanted it to be. And if he's withholding something from you, maybe he's doing that for a good reason. This is what it looks like to review God's grace to you. So look back at what God has done for you and look forward to what God will do for you. This is what David is doing here in 1 Chronicles 17. Looking forward to God establishing this king who will rule forever named Jesus. He didn't know that part yet. He didn't know how many years down the road this was going to be. But we know we have that benefit by living today. But anticipate what God is going to do for you. That he's going to take you all the way home. Perhaps you noticed in the song and in this passage, the line that says, you have brought me safe thus far. God is, has taken you all the way to the point you are now, and he's going to take you all the way home. And perhaps you realized how many times the word home is in this passage or house is in this passage, just as there is in the song that we sang. Perhaps you noticed the line here in verse 26, you have promised this good thing to your servant. Maybe you weren't familiar with that, that verse of Amazing Grace. We sang the six verses that John Newton wrote. Uh, the, the, the 
final verse that we're often most familiar with was actually taken from a different song altogether called Jerusalem, My Happy Home and just thrown into Amazing Grace uh, decades after the song was written. But anticipate what God will do, the, the good that He has promised to you and the way He will take you all the way home. Let me give you a couple suggestions for ways you can do this. I want to encourage you to meditate on the power of songs, the power of good songs, like the ones we've sung today, like even just Amazing Grace itself. I want to encourage you to sing them loudly when you're here or at home, but sing them loudly. Meditate on them at home. Keep a hymnal with your Bible. Perhaps that would be something that you change up this year as you read your Bible. You could have a hymnal with you and read through a hymn as you read through a passage of Scripture. Hymns are full of good theology. Good hymns, at least, are good, full of good theology. Also consider the power of writing letters and notes to encourage and counsel other people as a way of anticipating what God's going to do in your life and in other people's lives. One of John Newton's longest-lasting legacies, or most powerful legacies, besides the hymn writing, was his letter writing. And I have one collection of his letters, but there are many more of these. This is called Select Letters of John Newton, and there's dozens in here, and there are hundreds of others available for us to read. And what essentially he was doing was shepherding his congregation and many other pastors and Christians and even non-Christians and giving them truth, and it is often unbelievably beautiful, the uh, counsel that he gave to these people. As you anticipate what God is going to do in your life in the future, I also want to encourage you to consider the power of learning truth well, or perhaps we could say of catechizing your children and your grandchildren. And what I mean by that was John Newton was catechized by his mother. Again, we don't know much about his father's spiritual life, but his mother was teaching him truth even up to the, probably to the day she died, just day after day, cementing in his mind the fact that there is one God, the fact that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the fact that we are sinners, and on and on. And those truths were ringing around in his head while he was sinning in high-handed ways. He was purposely going against everything he had been taught. But he had been taught. And it was the truth that his mother had taught him that the Lord started to use as he nearly died time and time again on the Atlantic Ocean. And as he was held a slave, and as he sold slaves, and in all of this, I just want to encourage you to consider the power of catechizing your children and grandchildren in the truth. And it's not a question of whether they will be catechized. They are being catechized by YouTube or by whatever magazines you bring into your home or by whatever TV channels you have on in your home just in the background, all these things are catechizing your children and grandchildren. So I'm just urging you to be more specific and more intentional about it. And to see all of life with the eyes of faith, to interpret your life as the working of God in every circumstance. This is what John Newton did as he got older. He would look back and say, that day, I was supposed to die that day. There is no human explanation for why I'm still alive, except that that was a work of God. He did that to draw him to himself and to expose his grace to you in fresh and timely ways and be looking for those ways with the eyes of faith. I also want to urge you to extend grace to others. So the way John Newton put it was if, if you, and he said this in a letter, if you uh, were part of a company of travelers and you're walking along your way and you all fall in a pit, right? You're walking at night, There's no flashlights. You just accidentally all fall into a pit. And somebody comes along to that pit, maybe the next day, and reaches a long rod down into that pit. And you grab onto it and he pulls you out. 
what a graceless person would do is turn around and mock those people who are still in that pit. Or say, how dare you be so foolish to fall into that pit? But a gracious person would say, now let me help you out as well. Let me move toward you and extend this mercy toward you. And so John Newton wrote in this, this particular letter, a man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, the man in the book of Luke who we read about who was blind. After his own eyes were opened, uh, he, would despise, he would no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. That would be foolish. Why would Bartimaeus do that? Because he doesn't understand grace. That's why he would do that. But what John Newton's saying is Bartimaeus would have been merciful toward blind people because he knew he had once been in that situation himself. So to extend grace to other people may mean that you need to assume that not everyone has the same experience that you've had. Maybe you've had a really positive experience and you can't understand how somebody would have a negative experience. Maybe you've had a really negative experience and you can't understand why people would be happy. And what extending grace to other people means is that you don't assume everyone has had the same experience as you. You also remember that you may not have all the information about a particular situation. Maybe the person hasn't told you that they're going home to care for someone who's dying and maybe that's why it seems like they're having a bad day. You may not have all the information and so extend grace toward them. You cannot see the heart, which means that you don't understand their motives. You can only understand so, someone as much as they tell you or, or share with you uh, and expose to you. You also don't know all the influences that have factored into a situation. To extend grace means that it's more important that another person knows you love them than it is for you to fix their problems for them. And on conscience issues, in other words, issues that are gray, that the Bible doesn't say this is always right. Sometimes the Bible does say this is always right. This is always wrong. But sometimes it doesn't do that. And we as Christians have to learn to live with each other who vote differently, who eat differently, who exercise differently. On conscience issues, don't give the impression that there is one right way and it's your way. We choose instead to assume that our applications of scriptural principles may not be the only way to apply that scriptural principle. It may not even be the best way to apply that scriptural principle. This is part of what it looks like to extend grace to other people. So review God's grace to you, how he has been so kind to you in the past, and anticipate God's grace to you, how he will carry you all the way home. He has brought you safe thus far through many dangers and toils and snares. He is the one who, by his grace, taught your heart to fear. When John Newton said that, he was saying, I didn't care about truth. I didn't care about God. I wanted nothing to do with it. That's why he said I was a hardened atheist. He wanted nothing to do with God. But it was the grace of God that made him care. And then it was the grace of God that gave his spirit life at the moment of his conversion. We don't exactly know when that was. But it was started by things, by experiences like nearly falling into a raging sea during storms. So review God's grace and anticipate God's grace in the future. In a small cemetery... In a parish churchyard in only England stands a granite tombstone 
with the following inscription. You could go see it yourself. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's amazing grace. And just days or weeks before he died, one of his best friends was at his bedside there in London where he had finished his his second pastor. So he started as a pastor when he was 39, which is how old I am. And I've been a pastor for over 10 years. He started as a pastor when he was 39 and he ministered in only for about, I think, 16 years and then in London for about 25 years or so. At this time, he's a very old man. He's a very frail man. He's lying on his deathbed and he knows it. And he said to one of his best friends, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That Christ is a great Savior. I'm sorry, I blew it. I messed it up. I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That is a beautiful line. I hope that you can remember those two truths today as well. As you reflect on God's kindness toward you. On the way that your faith has been developed by the grace of God and the way that you can keep walking with God all the way to the end, expecting His grace to continue to be with you all the way home. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we marvel at the way you have shown such great grace to King David in giving him this covenant that he did not deserve any more than anyone else did. We marvel at the great grace you have shown to John Newton, taking this wicked, blaspheming man who hated you and all your ways and all your people and instead then labored to preach this faith that he had long labored to destroy. And we thank you and we stand in utter awe of your grace toward us, that you have rescued us from the pit of hell, that you have redeemed us and restored us by your grace and that we can see your fingerprints all over our lives as you lead us all the way home. Whether that day will be soon or whether that day is many decades from now before we are taken all the way home, we anticipate and expect to see your grace all along the way. And we pray that we would in turn then extend grace to others around us. In Christ's name, amen.